0: everyone and welcome to episode 31 of the Backyard Banter podcast. My name is Matt Harmon and uh, this is the second time I've done this intro today. I'm pulling back the curtain right away. Uh, We've had some we've had some connection issues and this that and the other with this podcast, but I am really excited to actually finally do this thing because we have a great guest here on the show today. It's uh, Adam Levitan from DraftKings from the Daily Fantasy Football Edge podcast. Adam, how's it going, man? yeah
1: i'm really honored to be here i mean i love fantasy football industry talk i love sports media industry talk in general and i love dogs i mean uh i have a real problem an obsessive problem with me and my dog and i know you do as well so i feel like we got a lot in common going on here
0: yeah, we're, I I would say we are definitely in in good company in terms of the dogs, and uh, I know you you've built up a pretty good following on the. I listen to your guys' as uh, DFS Edge podcast during the football season all the time. Um, and you know I know that you guys talk a lot about Jerry on there. You've got the the photoshops going on. That's that's a pretty that's a pretty peak connection you get with your followers there.
1: Uh, I mean, shout out to Rusty Nuts DFS and some other guys that have just made the most incredible um memes and images with jerry's face like i feel like in terms of not quantity but quality there's more quality jerry memes out there than there are crying jordan memes and i know that's setting a high bar but there's some serious jerry memes out there
0: oh yeah that's that's the best i I think i think my dog has been crying jordan like At least seven times too, which is just kind of rough. I mean, I posted one picture of him from the Grand Canyon, and somebody slapped a Jordan face on him. Like, all right, come on, guys, this was a nice moment we had, and (laughs) I I officially put the word out there that I'm only accepting quality crying Jordans now. Like, they got to be good, and because the peak ones are still they're still too good. But uh, at we're we're, not only are we here today to talk about dogs and crying Jordan memes. uh, You know, if you've been listening to the podcast. You know that what we're doing here is we're kind of going through the industry, talking to some of the bigger names out there, some of the best people and kind of getting a feel for how you got to where you were in order to, you know, maybe just provide a guideline for other people or just listen to some good stories. So let's start out the beginning of your story, Adam. How did you kind of come to fall in love with with football, fantasy sports? Take us through your backstory there.
1: Yeah. I know you ask this question a lot of people, or I guess every episode you say, how how do you get the bug for football? And, and, you know, I've thought about that a lot from listening and I'm not sure that I necessarily have the bug for football and maybe that'll disappoint some people, but like, I'm not sure if fantasy didn't exist, I'm really not sure I would sit down and watch a football game. Um, and that, that really might be blasphemy to, to a lot of people out there. And I get that, but I always had, um, a thing for watching sports to try to predict the outcome. Like I can remember as far back as fifth and sixth grade organizing pools for my friends. And, and um, you know, back when I was doing this, there was no such thing as the internet, you know, we obviously had the box scores in the paper, and I would organize it and I would do everything by hand. Like one of my first confrontations ever was with this kid's mom, who I guess the kid went to his mom and complain that I didn't let him in this fantasy football pool that I was doing by hand, because it was just so much work. I had to cut it off somewhere, so I cut it off with this kid. And his mom just comes at me and starts yelling at me like I didn't let her kid into the league. And I was like, you don't understand how much work it is to go through the, the box scores and add up everybody's scores. So uh, yeah, that was like my first confrontation ever, really, now that I think about it. So so yeah, I, I, I'm, I've always been into like organizing and trying to predict outcomes, and really, As it went along, I was always the one doing the the March Madness pools for all my friends and and really just trying to take their money by organizing this and then me being better than them at watching sports and predicting outcomes. So I I guess probably unlike most of the people you've had on here, I'm not sure I love football as much as I love trying to be more correct than other people and saying what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, that is a completely different perspective than anything that's been shared by anyone else. That's so funny about the interaction with the mom. That's like you were dealing like with a troll on Twitter before (laughs) there is even the Internet.
1: Yeah, and she was like, you will let Gregory into the league. And I was like, I really don't have time to. to," She was like, no, he is in the league. And and that, that really stuck with me.
0: Oh, that's incredible. So that's interesting. I mean, just. So do you, like on Sundays, are you watching games? Or are you tuned in? Or, or like what, kind of explain that, I guess, a little more like how that uh, how that's different from everybody else.
1: Yeah, of course I'm watching games because I do think there's something to be gained by watching a football game um, rather than just looking at stats. And there's certainly people that um, you could talk to that say, hey, you lose stuff by watching a football game. It just clouds your mind because the mm-hmm. data is impartial. I actually think there is something to be gained Uh, by watching a football game mostly because what i'm normally trying to project is opportunity um i know there's a lot of people out there that try to project talent and how good a guy is i'm trying to figure out exactly when coaches use players in what spots they use players how often a quarterback uses um a certain scheme or if it audibles who he goes to and a lot of that stuff i think you can pick up by watching the games so i certainly um watch a lot of the games um i still enjoy watching sports I, I still love sports i guess just my main point is that if i didn't have something where it was fantasy or i was using it to predict future fantasy stuff i'm not sure i would watch
0: i see so it's a, it really is just kind of a you know i, I think that we all like it's football is kind of like a, in sports in general or you know they're entertainment it's like an it's an art form and it's all like what you get out of it, you know, just like in, if you're walking through a museum, like I'm going to interpret a painting completely different than somebody else would. And I think that it's just that whatever you get out of it is, is different. So that's, that's pretty, that's pretty cool perspective. So, um, I guess, so you kind of always had the bug to sort of be more involved than just like a casual observer. When did that kind of transition to writing about, about fantasy sports?
1: Yeah, I I always thought that for sure I was going to be a beat writer for the Washington Bullets for the Washington Post, like 100 percent, no doubt. I always thought that would be my job. I worked for the high school newspaper. I planned to go to journalism school uh, all throughout high school. used to go to Bullets games with my dad, and, and this was during the George Murison, Chris Webber, Juwan Howard, Calbert uh, years. And I know you're not an NBA fan, but for my NBA people out there, those were great times. Um, but yeah, I used to go to all the Bullets games with my dad and look up at the press box. And that was when Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon were covering the Bullets a lot. And I would look up there and think, you know, one day I'm going to sit up there and be the beat writer for the Washington Post. Um, so I was a journalism major at Penn State where I went um and yeah started looking for newspaper jobs and jobs in sports writing after that this was uh back in 2004 it was certainly before fantasy football was anybody ever thought you could have a full-time job doing that there were certainly fantasy football articles in newspapers but they were really just guys who followed the nfl and had a fantasy column on the side like to think that this would ever be a full-time job was just so foreign so um, yeah, I, I took a job with a place called the Sports Network right after college. Um, was writing about international soccer. They were paying me about twenty-four thousand dollars a year, um, and I got fired from there, or quote-unquote laid off from there, about four months into it. And that's kind of when this whole thing uh, kind of spiraled from there. So, so yeah, I think that that for me, like, I always thought I would be a news, a news sports writer, like an actual. Um, beat writer. And I think, you know, a lot of guys coming up today don't really take that path and that may be better. That may be worse. I don't know. But for me, it was always about newspaper and uncovering, uncovering information.
0: Well, yeah, I would say in terms of young guys like coming up, that's for me uh, thinking about like, what do I want to do as a writer? The one thing I never wanted to do was be a beat writer. That was one thing that I just, for me, that wouldn't like click, I guess. But that's, you know, it's really interesting. And I would say that you kind of found a place initially with Roto World that uh, definitely is news heavy, even if you're not covering a specific team.
1: Yeah. And so I think that helped me get the job. And just real quick, how, how I got there, I, I guess I never really mentioned um, this place called the Sports Network was downsizing and and they let me go. This was four months. I was 22. Um, I was living in a place called Manny Young, which is kind of like a young person section of. Philadelphia. um, And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I mean, I had almost no money. And this guy that I worked with at the Sports Network named Jordan Ronan now covers the Giants for uh, NJ.com. He had some connections at a very small paper called the Doylestown Intelligencer. I helped me get a part-time job there where I was an agate clerk and page designer. And I'm not sure anybody really knows what that is, but basically it's the box scores and all like the small print in the sports section of the newspaper. Like I was the guy that compiled that and put that on the page and, you know, they would pay me $11 an hour for 12 hours a week. Um, I was supplementing my income and and I'm not sure I would have been able to stick with sports if I wasn't able to do this, but I was supplementing my income by playing poker Um, at that time if you were reasonably competent at poker, this was like 2004, 2005, if you were reasonably competent at poker back then, you could uh, win a lot of money or or at least have a sustained success and not that much variance just because it was so new and there were so many bad players. So I was able to kind of float myself along with this part-time job, uh, stay in the industry, see what would happen next and also play poker to kind of support myself. later like maybe a year later a year and a half later jordan got a job at metro newspaper which was a small daily here in philadelphia and he used me a lot on a freelance basis so i was able to stay in the industry that way was able to write some fantasy columns for him that got published and then when it came time for me to try to kind of get more into fantasy i was like this is really something i really like writing about a lot let me see what else i can do I actually had writing samples to send to Greg Rosenthal, and I also had this journalism degree, and I had some writing and beat writing experience you know, on a small scale, and I thought that um, that kind of helped me perhaps get noticed. He didn't answer my email for like six months, but uh, eventually he did, and I think that might have had something to do with him giving me a shot.
0: Nice. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have the credentials for sure. Uh, just real quick, kind of cycling back a little. And, you know, we've had this conversation with some people on the podcast, but it's always good to get this perspective from somebody that went. Do you really feel like journalism school was a big help for you? Because this is kind of a debate that crops up on Twitter sometimes where people say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's not worth it. Or a lot of people say it's a huge thing. Where do you kind of f- fall on that?
1: Yeah, I thought for undergrad, journalism was good. I mean, I wasn't a sports journalism uh, major. I was a journalism major. I learned a a lot about news. I had to write politics stories. I had to cover current events. And then I also got to write some sports articles also. I think the bigger controversy is whether to go to journalism uh, graduate school. And I didn't do it, so I can't say for sure, but I would venture to say that that is a um, pretty big waste considering you can start in a newspaper and kind of get more real-life experience um, covering all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, I think for fantasy, it would be pretty silly to go on to J School for graduate school, but I think it's a fine major for undergrad. I mean, we don't, we learn a lot about writing, which is going to be important no matter what job you do, and you learn about interacting with people, which is going to be important no matter what job you do. So I do think that it's a pretty good major.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that if you're not like a natural writer, I think that it's huge. it just... It's you can tell reading people's work who like writes just to write about uh, or just to talk about football. And then but also people that are like kind of have a more natural inclination to be able to write about multiple different subjects. And I feel like having the grads or not grad school, but having journalism school in your back pocket, that probably helps a lot with that. Um, so when you got to Roto World, what was like the early experiences there for you?
1: Oh, yeah, I was terrible. I, I mean, it looks easy to write a blurb, right? Like you find some news and you write about it, but I was absolutely terrible. I mean, Evan and Westling were just all over my case. I mean, I was a total disaster, but I think Greg kind of made them stick with me. Um, I I mean, when you start, like I didn't have any background about offensive lines or you know, defensive linemen or safety play or schemes or any of that. I mean, this was in uh, 2006 or so, that information really wasn't that rarely available. And as somebody who really wasn't like the biggest NFL savant or anything, I had to write blurbs about offensive linemen. I just had no clue whatsoever. So Evan and Chris used to go back through my blurbs and edit them all up and make sure that they were fit uh, to be published. So, you know, without them, I would, uh, without them doing that, I'm not sure I would have stuck. And without Greg, uh, having them stick with me uh, through while I learned all this stuff would have been, um a disaster so yeah i i owe everything to to evan and chris and greg i, I mean for the me sticking there and, and sticking with them obviously gave me a platform and and obviously without roto world nobody would know who the hell i am in the world so uh just everything to them for for helping me along because it, it's really harder than it looks to write a blurb that it sounds dumb but it really is
0: Yeah, it kind of explained that a little bit because I mean definitely to the to an outsider It seems like oh you just uh, you kind of regurgitate a little bit of what the beat writer says and then give a little quip at the end But there's a little bit more to it than that
1: Yeah, well first finding it right like this was back before Twitter So finding news was a lot harder and I also think that like the best blurbs on Roto world the best ones that we were doing were ones that aren't on Twitter, you know Like if you have a Twitter account in theory, you should be able to see most of the news, but there's also takes and stuff on TV and stuff in the actual newspapers that is really relevant and stuff that you can't find anywhere else besides Roto World. So I thought that was really important. Number one, finding the news. And again, before Twitter, that was really hard. So, like, you know, Chris would come on and be like, here's some stuff that I saw you missed during your shift. And there would be like 10 really big things that were in newspapers that I missed. And I now I would know to go back and read through this parts of papers and stuff like that. So that's kind of the first thing. And the second part that I think is difficult is having just a knowledge base to write intelligently about every single player in the NFL, not just skilled players, every single player in the NFL. And I certainly struggled with that for a while and trying to relate it to fantasy and write it in a way that people can understand it. I think you know there's a lot of really smart people out there doing crazy things with data. If you have this amazing gift for spreadsheets and data and everything, but you can't convey that to your readers, it's essentially worthless. And I think, you know, that's why Mike Clay is so great and Bales and all these guys like they are crazy uh, data stuff. But they can also really write and convey that to their uh, readers. So I, I think it's just if people try it, they'll realize that it's it's harder than uh, than it looks.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is your your story is a little different from some too, because, you know, there, you didn't just walk into something and were just immediately good at it. You know, that's, that's pretty cool because sometimes I guess you kind of have to find your way in it. And, um, so what was like, how did you kind of get better? What, what was a little bit of the path that you took in order to improve at Roto World?
1: Yeah. I mean, just getting a lot of hours and I know I heard Roto Pad talk about like, when you first start, you do the shit hours, you know, Saturday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, Sunday in the off season, you know, Friday night. And I was just doing that and always trying to do my best to find stuff even when news wasn't going on. Um, and I would look, you know, when Evan and, and Chris would edit my blurbs, I would look and see what they changed with them. A- and as I go on, you know, I read every single blurb, um, which is something that I was a huge Rotor World fan before I started working there. But uh, once I started working there, I certainly read every single blurb. And that just gives you a bigger knowledge base of, of all the coaches and all the coordinators and all the the different positions. Um, so yeah, just growing my knowledge base and just knowing where to find news and kind of finding a style, uh, that works in blurbs. And, and yeah, eventually I think after, you know, six months to a year, I think everybody, um, who lasts that long, uh, has a pretty good handle on it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and it's, yeah, it, t- it takes time to get into that sort of style, and also, yeah, building the knowledge base is the most important thing. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing more embarrassing, like as a as an analyst or especially a fantasy analyst, if somebody asks you a question, you know, and you're kind of stuck there with your pants down and you don't know the, you know, you don't know the answer, you don't even like, what the hell, play like who the hell player is that? Except during the draft, during the draft, there's like you know seventh round defensive ends that I'm perfectly fine like never knowing that they existed. But big name players, it's kind of rough to to not know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I love stump, stumping Josh Norris when like a guy gets drafted and Norris doesn't know who he is. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, that's 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 the best. Um, so after how long were you at Roto World before you uh, before you left?
1: Yeah, like seven years. I mean, I started as a, a blurber. You know, I, I emailed Greg and I said, um, you know, I'm willing to do anything. Here's some clips. Uh, here's my resume. I'm willing to do anything, you know. And I sent him some ideas for articles, and, and he wrote back and said, uh, you know, the articles are great, but w- what we really need is a news blurber. And, you know, the pay is $8 an hour or something like that. And I said, uh, sure, like like anybody would. I'm sure, like, you know, you have to take things in perspective. I understand that um people are willing to do this for free. Like people would for sure do Roto World blurbs for free. I wasn't going to say no to $8 an hour by any stretch. I probably would have said yes to free also. Um, so yeah, I, I I just, you know, started off doing just blurbs and then gradually they gave me more hours. Um, gradually let me do some articles. Um, eventually when Chris Westling left, I started doing the waiver wired column, um, the daily dose and just kind of my role grew and grew. And yeah, I was there for seven years. So, um, yeah, obviously just, the most amazing uh place to work for sure and 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 yeah it was a great seven years
0: yeah that, that that's awesome and you know if you guys I, we talked with uh, matt friedman on the last episode about the fantasyland podcast and the kind of the one of the best episodes i thought was the uh was the building up of roto world there's just so many like branches of that tree that that go off and spin other places obviously like i work with greg and and chris now at uh nfl.com and there's It's just so interesting, like seeing how the the industry unfolds like that. So, you know, after seven years, people know now. Like you're with you're with DraftKings. What was kind of the uh, take us through that decision a little bit? Because I'll say, like, just from my perspective, you know, obviously the like the DFS thing is is things are trending a little bit better now. But you know, a little bit after you went on there, you know, it seemed like things could get pretty dark pretty quickly. So to me, it would seem like kind of a little bit of a risky move. But what went into your uh, what went into your thought process there?
1: Yeah, well, I always had a backup plan, you know. If if it didn't go well, I was just going to open a doggy daycare center in which, you know, uh, people drop off their dog to me when they go to work, and I take care of them all day, and I, I start that business. Um, that no, actually might be. A, but
0: it might be a little bit less stressful too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it was certainly a hard decision. I mean, working for Roto World was awesome. I mean, I worked from home, and and I'm not sure many people know the name Brett Vandermark, but he was kind of. Greg's replacement after he left and he's just an amazing boss I mean he was not uh, let us write about uh, pretty much whatever we wanted we kind of uh ran the ship and he was always there to support us and and, you know it wasn't like a, a boss that you would see like not like Gavin Belson on Silicon Valley or like Steve Carell's character on The Office like it wasn't like that at all it was an awesome uh job awesome boss obviously Evan and and Pat and Nick were uh, amazing to work with. So it, it was certainly a, a tough decision for me. Um, I kind of looked at it in terms of range of outcomes. And, and you know, when you're working in a new industry, uh, I thought the range of outcomes was higher in a strict DFS space. And certainly the, it's a narrow range of outcomes at, at NBC and Rotor World, super stable and, and just a great job and, and all this stuff that, that comes with it 401k and, and all that. Um, just really solid, and and that would have been the low variance route. Um, I thought for me, I am kind of have a lot of risk tolerance in my background. I just kind of wanted to chase um, the highest, the highest upside, and and it was also a perfect storm at the time. You know, this was a time where I had kind of established a name for myself, and I thought I had a pretty good skill set for DFS, and also it was a time when like. DFS was just starting and these new companies, essentially startups were just had um, so much money and there was just so much uh, upside with it. I thought that it was worth the risk to work um, you know, in that space. And also to credit to DraftKings, like a big thing for me with them was uh, I wanted to sign an independent contractor agreement, not a full-time uh, agreement. I wanted the chance to chase any other opportunities that came my way. And that's kind of how I got involved with Fantasy Labs and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I kind of want to have a chance to start my own thing and be invested in startups that I have a chance to really grow and be a big part of. So it was certainly a hard decision, but I just kind of thought it was a perfect storm of factors.
0: Yeah, it's, it sounds that way, and I agree. Like, it's it's cool to still be able to keep your keep your hands in other in other things as well outside of just the main company that you work for. Um, so what's what's different that you like? How's the job at DraftKings different than the job at RotoWorld?
1: Yeah, I, I try to carry over a lot of my articles um that I thought were good from Rotor World that focus on game to game stuff that focus on opportunity. And and you know, I, I know I already mentioned this before, but like I think in dynasty, probably a hundred percent of your skill set should be talent evaluation and in redraft, maybe fifty percent should be talent evaluation. And in DFS, really, I'm looking 90% at opportunity or at least 80% at an opportunity and then maybe the other 20% um, is talent. So I've tried to fo- shift my focus there. And I've tried to follow the news as closely as possible throughout the offseason. But I certainly don't follow it like I did um, at Rotor World just because there's no way to profit off of offseason news until uh, that part of the year, that three or four months of the year when we can play DFS. But um, yeah, I, I think it's pretty similar. You know, my articles are pretty similar. I try to focus more on on tight projections and target projections and carry projections um i try to focus on news that impacts uh, dfs players specifically um and yeah but like always just like i at Roto world i still try to be someone that people can come to for information uh first and foremost you know i, I don't want to put my opinion out there as much as i want to put out just information that people can use to make their own opinions
0: yeah for sure um it's it, it, it's it's definitely the, the there's been some people that have kind of like, you know, dipped the toe into the water of the DFS thing, but there's others kind of like yourself that have gone full on in there. What what about DFS really just kind of appeals to you differently than maybe other forms of fantasy?
1: Yeah, it, look, uh, for me, it's not for everybody, for sure. And I totally get that. For me, it's like the perfect thing. and And I love now, it's just like it gives you a chance to prove yourself. Like people used to always tweet at me. Um, You don't know what you're talking about or or I could have your job or or, you know This is a bad take on this guy. I'm like, okay. Well, I have head-to-heads posted um, You know for whatever buying level you want You're welcome to come play me and and prove that that you're better than me And I just leave it at that that's to me is like the best part of DFS It's like if people want to talk if people want to prove whatever they know more that's totally fine Let's do it and we'll settle it where it counts most you know with actual money. So that's just a huge thing for me. Um, I just love it. I don't know. I, I love the week-to-week aspect of it. I mean, it's really tilting, obviously, to play season long and have your first-round pick go down. In week two, that's totally part of the variance, I understand. But when you like invest so much of your year in this one draft, um, that can be really tilting. So, yeah, I, I, I think it just fits my personality and the way that I like to play fantasy so perfectly.
0: Yeah, I like, I like it too because – like you mentioned, it, it is so much about opportunity, but I also think that it kind of brings you a little bit back to, like, you know, the true roots of evaluating, like, matchups and individual, like the cornerback and wide receiver matchups, like really digging into that, like what matters, like, you know, whether it's just disparate information or whether it's something is actually super important or whether it's, a you know, a good, like a really bad run defense but a really shitty backfield is playing them. Like, how much do you put into that? I think it's so fascinating from that perspective.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. Matchups are totally everything and you see it, and, you know, in week to week. If you follow the matchups really closely, you can see, you know, in week to week, like certain defenders, you need to know exactly where they're going to be on the field. And, and that's something that maybe we don't evaluate at all in season long.
0: Yeah. And also evaluating like other people, too, especially when it comes to like large field tournaments, like you have to like project ownership and everything like that. That's a really cool part of it, too, like especially like deciding whether to fade a guy or to you know that contrarian play this that or the other I think that's another part like evaluating other actual people other actual players not just the 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 football players is fascinating to me too
1: right exactly you're not playing fantasy in a vacuum it's it's, there's tons of game theory involved knowing what your opponent is gonna do is obviously huge and yeah I think that um, one of the articles that I write is an ownership uh, projection article where I try to figure out What people are going to do and that's obviously a huge part Of it
0: yeah it's 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 good stuff and uh, you guys Have a really a really good podcast like kind of Diving into all this uh, I think I mentioned it up Top the daily fantasy football edge with uh, Al Zeidenfeld and Peter Jennings that's a That's a good show I always would listen to it uh, On my Saturday shifts at NFL after I'd written my DFS column and be like oh Damn it they those guys brought up a really good point I should have written that
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, I have so much fun doing the podcast. it's it's really the best and um, those guys are just like so sharp and play such high stakes that like them coming on and sharing what they think is just crazy And I think that's part of the reason that it, that it's popular you know we don't just talk about it. Um, we actually go out and like you can play Peter and Al for any stakes that you want literally like they play, so much um and they're sharing information that that they um certainly don't have to so yeah it's just so fun to do the pod with them
0: yeah it's good stuff man um i think one of the other things kind of a little bit shifting gears here that we wanted to talk about i know we wanted to talk about on your episode was how you you use social media a little bit differently than other people and Mm -hmm. you know everybody's talked about how much they're on. Like we're all on Twitter too much. That's for sure. Uh, especially yours truly. Uh, but y- you've mentioned kind of to me that you use Twitter a little bit differently. What makes your account different from others?
1: Yeah. And I only mention this cause I've heard some people on your podcast and I've seen some other people on Twitter kind of mention this. Um, I don't view Twitter for me personally as a social interaction tool. And that extends even when people that I know are fans that like, I know I wouldn't, Uh, have a job i know people wouldn't be paying me to write about fantasy if it wasn't for my fans and i and i totally get that people that follow me i just don't answer start sick questions i don't uh, use twitter as a conversation piece uh pretty much whatsoever i view my twitter as number one i'm going to put information out there that i think is extremely useful whether that's a link to somebody else's article whether that is a link to a podcast that i really like a link to a newspaper article, a stat that I found interesting updates on injuries, like total hardcore information that I think people aren't finding in other places that I think people will have use for when they're making their lineups. So that's my number one goal um, on Twitter. And I guess my number two thing with it is I want people to be able to click on my account and scroll up and down and just find information. Like, I don't want you to have to scroll through like a picture of me and my boys drinking. I I don't want you to have to scroll through, you know, beach photos of me and my kid. Uh, Nobody cares, you know what I mean? I don't want you to have to scroll through a bunch of yes, no answers to questions or start sick questions. Um, I want you to be able to click on my Twitter and find information that I've been talking about and find links to things that I've done. Um, and maybe that's a controversial hot take. I, I don't know. That's just the way I like to read people's Twitter, and I, that's the way I like to handle my Twitter. Um, the start, sit thing, especially for me, if you're on Twitter, if you're following me, if you're following Nat, if you're following all these people, if you're reading DK Playbook, if you're reading Roto World, like you have a huge base of knowledge. Me answering your start and sit question really shouldn't help you, or, or I don't think that that's what I'm here for. I think I'm here to give you information To make your own decisions and you'll be way way better for it so i don't know if that's a hot take or not but that's just the way i kind of view twitter and and people might say hey adam you're taking twitter way too seriously like i'm not even exaggerating twitter is the most valuable thing that i own by a wide margin like i have a house uh, my wife's wedding rings like anything i own my car twitter is way 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 more valuable than anything else I own and you know monetizing your Twitter is something that that um, we could talk about for hours but Twitter is I'll just say as a blanket statement Twitter is no doubt the most valuable thing that I own and that's why I take it kind of so seriously or maybe too seriously
0: well even from just the perspective for me like I mean I have a job because of Twitter you know I met I got connected with all these people because of Twitter and yeah normally when I need to keep up with something it's definitely through following People on Twitter, you know, good 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 information accounts out there and everything like that. But then at the same time, like, yeah, I I totally use Twitter differently. <laughs> like, I I'm all about you know, again, posting a thousand pictures of my dog, updating right. people on my like road trip or whatever that I just took. Uh, Yeah, and like the whole aspect of like making connections with people and all the community bullshit. Right. Like, that's that's totally my vibe. So it's it's definitely fascinating that we're I mean just you and i not not even the greater scheme of people out there are very, very different on this
1: yeah and that's totally fine and i follow you and like i would never like you know hate on somebody for using twitter a different way i just thought that's the way that it worked for me and and you know having the community aspect of it might work better um for other people you know do you do like start like if people ask me to start sit what's the chance that you respond
0: oh man i answer a lot i hate answering them though and i probably should just stop like yeah, th- there's a pretty good chance I, I answer it, but it is super frustrating. And I agree with you. Like, I feel like it's such a, like, I don't know about a waste, but it's, there's so much better ways that you can make a decision than just like I responded with this. Cause yeah. you know, whether it's looking at like at rankings or just reading an article or something like that, you get uh, just a better to make a decision than should I start Mark Ingram or, uh, right. Doug Martin or something like that. You know, right. I, yeah, I'm totally with you on that thought.
1: Yeah. And like a lot of the questions that people ask might be like 55, 45, or like even 60, 40. And and in that case, like a lot of times we're gonna be wrong. Like if I answered 100 start, sit questions, I'm pretty sure I'd be wrong like 45% of the time. You know what I mean? Um, So yeah, I I just don't really see a lot of value in that, but I I get that people uh, want an answer. It's just Twitter isn't the forum for me to necessarily do it.
0: Yeah, most of the answers I feel like are complicated. Like, well, I should go longer than 140 characters on this, you know, explaining why in this scenario, if your roster needs, you know, a little more variance, you start a different player than if you need just kind of a safe floor. So that's always difficult part about uh, answering the start and sit questions for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Oh, one thing I forgot to say about the Roto World stuff was like, I think one thing about since the blurbs don't have um, names on them, like. I, Evan and Chris were able to make me look really good. Like people knew I was associated with Roto World, and um, they didn't know who they were reading me or Evan or Chris. And I feel like now, you know, you don't know who's writing it. I feel like Pat and Ray and Nick are maybe making somebody else look really good who's there now. So, you know, that's kind of one thing that I thought was really cool about Roto World—that the blurbs are anonymous and 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 kind of um, stay that way. So, yeah, I, I thought that was something that I wanted to mention.
0: No, that's interesting. And I think that like sometimes you can tell who writes the blurbs based on, you know, like maybe the last line or whatever. Yeah, if there's snark like a level, pretty...
1: snark level.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's the snark level for sure. We've talked about that with a few of the other guys uh, from Roto World on the podcast. Like, do you think you had like a specific style and ready? Like if somebody lined your blurbs up with other people, do you think that yours would stand out in any way?
1: Yeah, I, I certainly wasn't as as snarky at, at, or as funny as, as some of the other guys. Obviously, Pat's the king. I know you had him on, and, and he talked about that. Um, yeah, I was probably tried to be as stats heavy as possible. Um, so, yeah, that would probably be my trademark. But, yeah, I don't think you'd be a huge difference between me and Ray and and Nick and Pat um, and Evan at this point. I think you know there's kind of good synergy there, and I think that kind of makes it good too.
0: Yeah, for sure, and I think that – you know, everybody's got a different writing style, but sometimes uniformity is certainly important, especially if you're just trying to convey uh, information. So, Adam, one other thing we another thing we wanted to talk about on the show here was you know living like a, a normal life because we mentioned you know digital like this the digital space and how you're different there, but you know also like you're you're married, you have you have a family and everything like that. What like what is the balance of of that? That's something that I've talked with a few people on, but haven't really dug into.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Um, I, like, first of all, like I think finding the right girl is just so huge. Like, think about it in terms of percentage. Like, what percentage of the field, and I mean like field of women between the age of like 22 and 30. Like, what percentage of the field do you think is attractive enough to one day be your wife? And, and Matt, don't tell me that inside is all that matters. We all know that that looks are going to be a factor. Oh, I was going to say
0: like bottom, like a 5.0.5% of them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So like, let's say like 20% of the field is attractive enough to be Matt Harmon's future wife. You know what I mean? Now let's, let's narrow that 20% down to girls who would actually want to bring home to your parents. And, and as I found out, you know, bringing home to your parents is tough, but having this person be your kid's mom is like even harder, even more important, you know, like I would not want my wife, like it sounds fun in a vacuum to say, Oh, my wife is a life of the party. She shotguns beers and smashes them against her forehead. And she's up for anything, anytime. Like, I'm not sure that that's who I would want to be the mother of my kids. Like if we go from that 20% of attractiveness, and then we go down even further from people, you'd want to be the parents of your kid and bring home to your parents. And then on top of that, you want someone who's willing to accept kind of an alternate lifestyle. You know, like when I met my wife, I was playing poker like 500 hours a year. Um, I had this weird job where I was kind of writing about sports and trying to write about fantasy. It's just like really an off the beaten path. And most of the girls that are attractive and have these really good qualities that you want to bring home to your parents and raise your children aren't going to be into a guy who has this. Kind of weird job. They probably would prefer a a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or somebody with a with a more stable life. So it's really hard to find the right girl for this industry. I mean, thank God I did. I have the most amazing wife that fits all the parameters I I just talked about, but it's hard. But I think, you know, taking the time to find that person if you're going to be in this industry um is really important. And then from there, everything is really easy. You know, like if I have a podcast. If I have to watch a game, if I have to do anything, um, she's always there to say, I understand, like this is work for you, even though it's football, and you know, I'll take care of the kid or whatever. So I, I think that makes it really easy if you start with having um the right spouse.
0: Yeah, I think well, for one, you really uh you really really have me on tilt now thinking about just the odds and percentage <laughs> about about women and dating and everything. Um I think if you've listened to the podcast, you've definitely uh, heard me shit all over my dating life, and <laughs> that's pretty accurate. I'm actually going on a date tonight, so I'll maybe uh, which is oh, shocking wow. in and of itself. But yeah, uh, I actually have I've managed to trick a girl into going on a date with me, but I'm sure that we'll we'll find out she doesn't fit any of the parameters, and it will end in in horrible right. flames. But uh,
1: <laughs> when you go out with her, you say you don't say that you write about fantasy football and, and reception perception. You say I'm a writer for NFL.com. You know what I mean? And see how it goes yeah. right
0: there. Well, that is the, and you mentioned like just having somebody that's able to accept kind of like an alternate lifestyle. And that's probably, you're right. That's probably honestly the hardest part, just because even if like I tell people like what I do on a day-to-day basis, like I get weird looks anyways, and they're not even people that I'm trying to like, you know, marry or anything like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, it's, I still find it hard to, especially the generation above us. You know, I'm 33, and I think I'm kind of the top of the range of people that understand my job. If I uh, go to my parents' generation, I I really struggle to explain to them uh, what I do. So yeah, it's certainly not an easy
0: thing. Right. So you watch football and (laughs) then you spend a bunch of time on the internet. It's a, it's a tough thing to, it definitely sounds better. You know, when you go out and like, yeah, I write for NFL.com. Like that's, that sounds important. Uh, but yeah. then when you really when you really explain the day to day stuff on a date, then they're like, Alright, this guy might be a loser. So that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of that is harder. And, you know, just the time away that that has to be probably especially as a dad, that probably has to be one of the harder things to deal with.
1: Yeah, when, when like, at, before we had the kid, and I didn't know too much about raising a kid at all, I was like, Oh, you know, I work from home, I'll just uh, you know, he'll sleep or he'll, you know, entertain himself and I'll do work all day. And once we had him, I realized that that is just absolutely positively not an option. Like I, he has to be, uh, cared for, like, I can't take my eyes off him for one minute. So there's no way I could get any work done. And that's where daycare comes in. And that's kind of where like the financial part of the whole thing comes in too, because having a kid is obviously expensive. Like when I was making $24,000, a year, I was like, whatever, you know, I could eat some bread and cheese for a week, or I could eat ramen for a week. It's not a big deal. Now, obviously it's different. And, you know, I also think that's kind of where DFS has helped the industry a ton. You know, even the season-long sites, everybody involved has more money now because there's more money in the industry as a whole, thanks to DFS. Um, You know, your article is going to get way more hits from people Playing DFS than ever before because they're real, they're you know, wagering actual money as opposed to season long where they might throw a hundred bucks for a whole year or something like that. So, just the level of interest, I think, and the level of people that are willing to pay for content uh, has gone way, way up thanks to DFS. And that's kind of allowed um, me and other people to be in the industry and have a family and you know, be able to afford daycare, which is something that um, without daycare, I couldn't do anything. So yeah, just a lot of things going on with that are really interesting and family and DFS and everything. It kind of just all comes together.
0: Yeah. On the DFS stuff specifically, you know, obviously it was in the news again this week with what's going on in New York, this, that, and the other, when that first started to kind of crop up and be something that was talked about, like the, you know, the legalization of it or whatever, you know, just the kind of the off field battles, if you want to put it that way, what was your reaction to that when that first started cropping up mainly like last year?
1: yeah i know i was concerned I, I i you know it was probably like friday night and for those of you guys that don't follow like the new york legislature went over time to discuss the bill in new york which obviously sets the tone for the rest of the country and it took until two thirty in the morning for them to legalize and, and pass this bill i mean i would consider it the biggest sweat of my life um i don't know what i would have done um if we didn't get this legal clarity i really don't i say the dog thing as a joke, uh, I love dogs so much. Maybe I really would have done something with dogs um, back when I uh, was first at Roto World, and I thought, you know, I might not be able to do this full time with a wife and a family. I took the GMAT, which is uh, the entrance exam to go to business school, and uh, maybe I would go back and use that score to to go back to school. I was really thinking about um, other options for sure. For sure, scary. Um, but yeah, I'm just like so relieved, and like I said, the biggest sweat of my life on on Friday, just getting out all the everything worked out and legal clarity in New York. So, um, yeah, it's, it's I would say a, a pretty big relief after Friday night.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, it definitely feels it feels like it's a good thing. It it creates a lot more jobs, and and that that especially in and of itself, like there's just more sites that you know want to cover fantasy now because of DFS or. You know, like even at football guys where I still work, like there's a lot of guys there just writing about DFS. That you know, who knows what would have happened if if it if it went differently. It's uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty tenuous, but it's a good thing that seems like we're uh, we're trending in a positive direction.
1: Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I don't want to say out of the woods, but yeah, I'm really like um, somewhat surprised, but really encouraged that the government seems to understand that this is uh, fantasy football in the future, just like uber is taxi in the future just like airbnb is hotels in the future like as technology advances um we need uh regulations and consumer protections on stuff like this so the fact the government could see that to me was really encouraging
0: yeah so clearly you're a man of progress i I,
1: (laughs) I was i was alive before twitter i mean it's hard to imagine but before before twitter it's unbelievable
0: yeah, no, I can't. Well, again, this comes back to the the difficulty of dating and and how things sound. Like, I can honestly feel like I don't know what I would do if there wasn't Twitter. Like, if we all if like Twitter collapsed, and you know, some one of my my college friends is out here, and he was asking me, he's like, people are still on Twitter. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm always on Twitter. Oh. I didn't I didn't realize that it, anybody. It, it's hard for me to think anybody's not.
1: Well, let me ask you a question. What percentage of your dates come from modern technology, and which come from just general, you know, meeting friends and friends and stuff like that?
0: Oh, well, I mean, if I wanted to actually date more than I did, it would come from like, yeah, like Tinder or, or something like that. Um, right. But yeah, it's so normal. But I, d- I don't date very much because I'm because I'm bad at it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, yeah, no, I mean, but that's how but that's how people meet. Now, I always I always right. complain about that. I'm like, I wish I could just meet somebody organically. And everybody's like, no, it, that doesn't happen anymore.
1: Right. Yeah. Hit the showers. That's not that's that's not a uh, <laughs> that's not reasonable yeah. anymore. Yeah. I, I miss that whole era, which. <laughs> Um, I'm a little sad about, but I I don't know. I met my wife through a friend of a friend, which I guess is the old fashioned way, but it's kind of interesting to me to see if anybody would swipe right on me. Like I highly doubt anybody would, but maybe they would. I don't know. I feel like it'd be really exciting if they did.
0: Oh dude, writing the, writing the profiles for those, talk about like the most just sickening feeling ever. I'm like, I never feel like I present a good self when I write like a dating (laughs) site profile. I'm like, I either said way too much or I didn't. Enough. It's a uh, that's like the bottom bottom five percent of things that I'm good at is writing a dating profile.
1: You're employed and you have a dog. That's really that's all it's going to take.
0: Right. That's what like it should just be that easy. It should just be a bunch of pictures of me and my dog. But you know the swipes. Hey man, they they they're still not coming in. But I I've, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been on I haven't been on Tinder in months just because I find the whole thing just unappealing but whatever that's enough about my dating life that's for sure but so Adam just kind of uh, winding down here a little bit I really appreciate uh, the the time today one of the things I've been asking people a lot lately is like what's something that you see in the industry that you don't really like or or kind of rubs you the wrong way
1: hmm well I, I always want people to be able to support their opinions and I think we're getting there with that but there's still some stuff that I see out there, like, um, Deion Lewis is going ha- gonna to have an unbelievable year. He did XXX last year. You know, and to me, that's not enough. Like, I think if you're writing about football, and it's so, so competitive. I mean, I talked already about um, how people would do my job for free, and I totally understand that. Uh, I think that separating yourself, at least by coming up with really fact-based, arguments database arguments you know uh stats beyond uh the norm um to separate yourself i think proving your opinions is something that's really important so i've certainly seen more of that lately like i don't know i don't really have much negative i know there was some bickering between the season-long people and the dfs people which to me is just completely asinine and ridiculous like season-long is not going anywhere no matter what uh people think um and also like dfs is so so good for the season-long community uh, so I hate seeing bickering there between those two factions. But but overall, I would say the community is uh, in really good shape, like really healthy fantasy football is getting more popular and there's more money coming into the industry. So I'd say it's a pretty good time.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. And I'm with you on the like proving your point thing. Like nothing frustrates me more, especially like somebody that's really heavy on you know watching film. And like I obviously watch a lot of wide receivers like it bugs me when I see somebody say something like, Oh well this guy gets you know brought down on first contact too much or he never gets open i'm like okay but you got to actually tell me like what does that mean you know what is it when you you, when you say like he doesn't get open enough or or, you know he doesn't create enough separation like i try to i feel like my stuff like like i actually show you what i mean when i say that you know so that's really for us i agree that's a frustrating thing to see
1: yeah for sure and like i think you mentioned on a previous podcast like you know for for a certain wide receiver like aj green is open when he's covered more often than brandon cooks is open when he's covered you know and like understanding little things like that and having data to back it up i think it, is really awesome
0: yeah that's that's for sure i think just yeah just stating your point and being able to prove it is uh is important but Adam, again, uh, so kind of last question here, and this is the question that everybody seems to hate this part of the podcast, but we do it anyways, because this is my damn show and I'm going to do what I want. Um, I always give the guest one last shot at the floor before we get out of here, before I yank it out from under you. So, you know, parting shots here that the floor is yours.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, for a, a tip for people trying to break in, um, it's going to be really hard to break in as. A fantasy football picks guy and what I mean by that is somebody who has a column every week talking about the players that they like for this week or the season-long writer that just has some picks about guys they like this week I think you have found um a niche with reception perception I know Graham um came on and talked about stats that he's uh developed I think that stuff is awesome I think maybe an easier way to break in now and specifically in DFS is by focusing on a sport, a niche sport. So like, I would personally pay out of my pocket. If there's anybody out there that wants to do this for me, I would pay out of my pocket for data on English Premier League in which all I want to know is when XYZ players are on the field, who takes the corner kicks? I mean, is that too much to ask? And that data is actually really hard to find. So I think niche sports like English Premier League soccer or um, golf or nascar if you can come up with a really big voice there and in today's dfs climate where people like me are willing to pay for really good information that i can profit off of i think finding a niche outside of your standard fantasy football picks column makes a lot of sense and i think if i was coming up now that would be something i would focus on and and maybe that's bad because i know this is a fantasy football podcast but um i don't want to discourage anybody from chasing their dream if they love football i just think it's an easier path to focus on a more uh, niche sport and try to really separate yourself there.
0: No, man, that's good advice. And, and it's, you know, it's a supply and demand issue. And like we've mentioned, you know, just I've bemoaned the fact on this show that there's so many good people from the football world that I can bring on. And that just kind of goes to show you that there's just a lot more supply of really good writers in football than there is a demand for them right now. So that's a good point to kind of maybe even just make your name at first in a side sport and then carry once you have like a following bring them over into a, like a football blog or something like that. And then, you know, you can make waves that way, but no, that's a really good point to, to close it out here on. So Adam, again, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. I, I really think that there was a lot that people could gain from, from what you had to say. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, please continue to uh, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Check us out there, share the show. Uh, this experience has been pretty fun for me, and I'm enjoying kind of uh, the last few episodes here in season one before the actual NFL season starts, and we, uh, we close this thing out for, for a little bit before the next off season. So again, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you learned something.